Three mean-looking guys on motorcycles went into a little truck stop diner and uh, looking to cause trouble. There was a, a, a little guy sitting at the counter, kind of scrawny. He was an 18-wheeler driver. They'd seen his, his rig out in the parking lot, and they decided to start some trouble. So they, they, grabbed, they just started eating his food right off of his plate, kind of pushed him around. But he didn't, he didn't do anything. He just paid for his, his meal and left. One of the bikers, a little bit disappointed that really hadn't been able to stir up anything with him, said, wow, he sure wasn't much of a man, was he? The waitress looked out the window into the parking lot and said, I guess not. He's not much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three motorcycles out there <laughs> in the parking lot. All of us feel like that, right? We feel like getting even when we're wronged. And one of the things that happens to us is bitterness comes into our life a lot of times. And the Bible says that bitterness can take a root and it can defile many. I've seen whole families, even generation after generation, defiled by bitterness, hurt, ruined. And I want us to find out how not to be bitter today. We're gonna look at the life of Joseph. Last week we looked at the life, of, the life of Jacob, his father. This time we're going to look at the life of Joseph. What we're doing, we're studying history, his story. It's all God's story. And we're going to find out even more about that today. But what I want to talk to you about is the concept of sovereignty. Not talked about very much in America today. That God is sovereign. Joseph knew this and this is what kept him from bitterness through all of the hurts of his life and he had a lot of them but even deeper than that even bigger than that I want us to kind of go into a, a, a discussion and understand the, the the fundamental philosophical question of what about the evil in this world in general what's going on with that what's the deal with that how can that be and it's been debated for a long time. Some of you, if you've come and you're kind of a, a looking and, and, and searching, maybe you have that question. Epicurus, uh, over 2,000 years ago, he, uh, he was a philosopher and he said this. He said, if God is all-powerful and evil exists, then God must not be good because he's all-powerful and evil exists he must not be good if God is all good and evil exists he must not be all-powerful and then he spoke to the people who said if as you claim he's all-powerful and all good how do you explain evil in this world and if you've read any of the debates between skeptics and and believers and uh atheists and Christians that is kind of the the ace in the whole card that that the skeptic plays in all of the debates what about evil how do you understand evil if God is really all-powerful and all good Christian where does evil come from it also gets asked in a profoundly more personal way all of us have known someone or maybe it is you and you've been affected by evil. You've been, something wrong has come into your life. And you begin to question, where is God in this? 
what is God doing in this why would God allow this and maybe it's made you turn from God maybe it's made that person that you love turn away from God and say you know I just don't believe in in God anymore and they get far from God and we're going to look at that today because Joseph discovered some answers to that it's interesting because what we're saying is that God is so powerful we've been studying this that he was able to take real life circumstances in the Old Testament and create out of them kind of a parable for us now they actually happened they were really real but God created events in such a way he orchestrated events in such a way that they become what experts call a type for us to see as believers and how to walk and what Joseph's life is all about is that God is sovereign so let's look at that let's let's start at the end and kind of work back and I think this is going to be life-changing for us this morning if we really understand this concept in the last chapter of Genesis Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15 pull out your sermon uh, notes there your little folder and inside there's some notes I put the the verses there for you to also be up on the screen or you can turn in your Bible to Genesis 50 verse 15 it says this when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him so they sent a message to Joseph saying your father charged before he died saying thus you shall say to Joseph please forgive I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sins for they did you wrong now it's doubtful that Joseph's father actually did this again I think the brothers are scared and they're trying to manipulate And they go on, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Bringing in God's name to it, right? Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive so therefore do not be afraid I will provide for you and your little ones so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them he even wept it's it's interesting that Joseph's life shows us something after Jacob's death Joseph's brothers were scared because they had wronged him so severely in his life but Joseph was saying I've escaped bitterness I'm not holding this against you in fact Joseph's firstborn son was named Manasseh which means to cause to forget we always talk about forgive and forget but really there is no forgetting but there is this sense of which I can choose to let it go and what Joseph is saying here is in order to forgive We've got to give God his proper place and we've got to take our proper place. You notice he said, am I in God's place? So he's trying to tell us something in this very last chapter of the book of Genesis. There are times when life feels out of control. There are times when we don't understand what's going on. When a terrorist with a nail bomb kills little children at an Ariana Grande 
uh, concert in Manchester, England. It seems like, what's going on, God? Where are you? How, how could this happen? How could this be? When someone we love dies suddenly, when a long-term relationship crumbles, when we hear about another person with cancer, when we're falsely accused, we have one of those times in life maybe where it seems like nothing is going right, finances and, and, and relationships and everything going wrong. That's why this last chapter of Genesis is so important because Joseph gives us insight into the sovereignty of God in the darkest of times. What is sovereignty? What is the concept of God's sovereignty? It might be a term that's unfamiliar to you because you don't hear it preached about very much in the U.S. today. It means that God knows the purpose for what happens in life. He sees and he's planned the final goal and he's actively moving toward that goal. R.C. Sproul states it succinctly. Let me just read it to you. He says, the central point of the doctrine of sovereignty is the stress on God's government of the universe. He rules his creation with absolute authority. He governs everything that comes to pass from the greatest to the least. Nothing ever happens beyond the scope of his sovereign providential government. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. He raises up kingdoms and brings them down. He numbers the hairs on our head and the days of our life. Rabbi Harold Kushner says that in, in one of his little books, he says that God is a, is a good being, but he's just a little overwhelmed with all the evil on this planet. The Bible never says such a thing. In fact, Joseph is telling us that is thinking without bringing into our minds the idea of God's sovereignty. Joseph contends that God's action or inaction in all cases comes from being sovereign, in charge. Now our question during all these times is always why? Why did this happen? Why did bad things happen to, to good people? Why did bad things happen at all? Why, what, what is God doing in the life of a Christian when something like this happens? But Joseph had learned through years of heartache mixed with faith something. Let me just read it to you. In verse 20, he says, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. And then he says, in order that, and he gives a reason. It took years and years for God's purpose to be clear. In the end, Joseph saw the hand of God. I want you to think about the implications of this one statement as we trace back quickly through Joseph's life. This means that God knew, and at just the right moment, Joseph, the favorite of his father with his coat of many colors, went out to his 11 brothers who were out in the fields, who were jealous of him and hated him to the point of killing him. He went out at just the right moment, they saw him coming, they said, the dreamer is coming, let's kill him. But instead of killing him, they threw him into a pit, a cistern, at just the right moment. Now, it didn't feel like the right moment to Joseph. At just the right moment, before they killed him, 
a, a, a band of traders from Midian came, slave traders, in a caravan coming through. And one of the brothers said, let's don't kill him. Let's profit off of him. Let's sell him to these slave traders and we will just put blood on his coat and we will say we found it to our dad and say a wild animal must have killed it. At just the right moment, they gave him over for money to the slave traders. At just the right moment, the slave traders went to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, the general of Pharaoh's army. And he worked for Potiphar for some years as a slave, and he worked his way up to be head of household. He was a good-looking guy, and Potiphar's wife lusted after him, and she wanted him, and she kept saying, I want you to lie with me, and he would never do it. He said, I won't sin against God or against my master. And so one time she grabbed hold of him, and in order to get away, he, he, she pulled his outer garment off as he pulled away from her and ran. And she used that because she was so angry at being spurned, and she said, he tried to rape me. And at just the right moment, he was thrown in prison. Now, I think Potiphar knew that his wife was lying or he would have been killed. He probably knew what kind of woman she was and, and, and what she kind of did behind his back. So he just threw him in prison because he had to save face. So Joseph is in prison, languishing in a foreign prison in Egypt. And at just the right moment, the king's cupbearer and, and uh, the king's baker are thrown into prison and they have a dream, both of them. And Joseph interprets their dream. The baker will be killed, the cupbearer will be restored, and he says to the cupbearer, when you're restored, remember me. It happens exactly like that, but the cupbearer forgets. For two long years, Joseph continues to languish in prison, but at just the right time, Pharaoh has a dream. And he says to his wise men, I know that you're going to lie to me if I tell you the dream. You're going to act like you know what the interpretation is so I'm not even going to tell you my dream you tell me my dream and the interpretation and they're stunned and they said no one can do that he says well you do it I'll give you a couple of days or I'll kill all of you now they're pretty desperate and all of a sudden the cupbearer remembers Joseph and he brings Joseph before the Pharaoh and Joseph because God is working in his life he speaks out Pharaoh's dreams and the interpretation the interpretation is there's going to be seven good years and then there's going to be seven years of terrible extreme famine so Pharaoh takes Joseph and he makes him at just the right moment the prime minister of all Egypt in order to oversee this and he's second in command to Pharaoh the second most powerful man probably on the face of the earth at that time at just the right moment at just the right moment the famine gets all the way back even to to where the promised land is and Jacob's family is suffering and so they hear that there's grain in Egypt because Joseph is saved up and they go and they stand before Joseph but they don't recognize him because he was just a little teenager when they threw him in the pit and traded him off and finally he speaks to them and reveals himself and at just the right moment they bring their old father Jacob and they go to Egypt that's why you're going to see 400 years later Moses bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt but what Joseph is saying in all of this he's saying so many of these things were meant for evil 
in my life but God wasn't asleep he didn't go oh I didn't see that coming he was working he was orchestrating he was moving behind the scenes because God is sovereign and if we look with eyes of faith on Joseph's life and which he was doing you can see God's fingerprints everywhere even though it doesn't speak that God was directly involved See, some of God's attributes are this, that he's sovereign. That means he's in control. He's in charge of how everything turns out. He's wise. He has wisdom. He makes no mistakes ever. And he's good. His goodness tells us he has our best interest at heart. God doesn't roll dice. Nothing happens by chance. In fact, he's in charge of what happens when it happens, how it happens, why it happens, and even what happens after it happens. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is true of all events in every place from the beginning of time. He does this for our good and for his glory. He's not the author of sin and evil, and yet evil serves his purposes. That's sovereignty. He doesn't violate our free will, and he never has, yet free will serves his purposes. We're not supposed to understand this. We're not supposed to be able to grasp this because he's God and we're not. You see, the problem that Epicurus had all those many years ago was God wasn't big enough. He was trying to reduce God. It was as if he was talking about me and what, I, what would be true of me. But it's not true of God because he can't see from God's perspective. God uses everything and wastes nothing. There are no accidents with God, only incidents. And this includes events that seem to us like senseless tragedies. Joseph's response again. The words of a man who believes in the sovereignty of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And both sides of this statement are true. I mean, his brothers, they truly did evil to him. That was an evil thing that they did out of jealousy. He didn't sugarcoat the truth. They're 100% responsible for their sin by their own free will. They threw him into the pit by their own free will. They sold him into slavery. And yet, God is sovereign and his plans were never thwarted. They were only accomplished. You see, knowing God is sovereign frees us from bitterness. Because the truth of the matter is, if we begin to understand it, nothing, as a believer, nothing can come into our lives unless it comes through, it's filtered through the fingers of a God, of a Father who loves us. Nothing. He's got us in the palms of his hand. And for something to come into our life, he has to allow it. It gives us a a new perspective on our tragedies. God is involved, even in the most inexplicable moments, the worst moments, the darkest moments, the why did this happen moment. He's involved in a way that we cannot see and probably wouldn't understand even if we could see it. 
because God's providence is what keeps us understanding and believing in the face of all these unanswered questions. God is good. His sovereignty. In his sovereignty, God is willing to bear the burden of all of our unanswered questions. He is so good. And his sovereignty gives us the courage to keep going in the hard times. Doesn't mean it's going to be any easier. Doesn't mean the feelings are going to be any different. Life is hard. Make no mistake about it. But God is good. And both of those statements are true all the time for all of God's children. The final question of Joseph's life is this. Will you trust God with the details of your life? See, someone's got to run the universe in your worldview. Well, really, there's only one that runs it, but a lot of us try to, right? And we're not good at it. Are you going to allow God to run your universe, or are you going to try to control and run your universe? Taking our proper place and giving God his proper place means that we humble ourselves under God's sovereignty. When terrible things happen to you, you have two options. Either God is sovereign, and for some reason he's allowed this to happen, or God isn't sovereign, and this one slipped by him. And the Bible declares that God works everything according to his will in Ephesians 1.11. Nothing, not the plans of evil men, not the circumstances of sin in the world now we brought sin you know God said to Adam and Eve so long ago he said you have dominion you be in charge mankind I put you in charge of this planet and we fell on our faces sin came into the world and it's just snowballed from that and so all of this we're 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 in the middle of it we can't look at it really like a philosopher because we're in it We're right in the very middle of it. We can hardly see it or understand it. But how can God be sovereign and God be good at the same time? Well, we're assuming that all suffering is bad. I want you to hear this from Elizabeth Elliot. His first husband was murdered by the savage people he was trying to reach as a missionary whose second husband died of cancer. She wrote this, the experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, that God is gracious, that God is merciful necessarily. To have had one husband murdered and another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks just the opposite. My belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. It's by faith. You see, God's definition of good is not the same as ours. Believing in God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you will understand what God is doing. It only means that you will trust that God is doing something. We don't define good in the same way. To us, good is what makes us happy, satisfied, complete. We see good as the absence of pain. That's not God's definition. I want you to think about the life of a baby in the womb. The baby in the womb, safe, secure, and then all of a sudden something begins 
to happen. All of a sudden, the world is squeezed in a painful way. All of a sudden, he's squeezed into a space so tight that he doesn't fit. And, and, and then all of a sudden, there's this brightness, light, and, and noise, and sound. And his very thing that he's clinging to for life is cut. It's a horrible tragedy to the unborn baby. It makes absolutely no sense to the unborn baby. In fact, if you could try to explain to the baby in the womb about it, he would never get it, would never understand, would never have an inkling of it because he's never experienced love or faith or mama holding him tight. It's a terrible tragedy but we know it as the beautiful thing we call birth. It's a beautiful thing because we have understanding of it, because we can see it, because we're more than, we've experienced more than the baby in, in the womb, and we can say this is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing. That is what God is going to do with us. You're not God. And you can't see it. And you can say, how could this horrible tragedy ever be anything but terrible? And God says, yes, it's sin. Yes, it's evil. Yes, it's the free will of evil men. And yet, God says, out of it, I will bring a birth. Out of it. I will bring a life out of it. I will bring something that you could never understand. God is not indifferent. Sometimes it feels that he's far, far away. Sovereignty tells us he's not. He's a father. He loves us. He's right here. He's just so much bigger that we can't get it. See, we really don't believe the words of Isaiah when it says, God's ways are not our ways. His ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts are as high above our ways as the clouds in the sky above the grass. That's what the Bible says. How could we ever understand? How could we ever get it? You see, Epicurus, he was speaking at too low of a level. His God was not big enough he was speaking as if God was us as if God was one of us and that would be true if Mark was God what Epicurus said but God is bigger than that living in the light of God's sovereignty it means this it means that we hold tight to the Lord no matter what the circumstances we judge the circumstances by God's word and not God's word by our circumstances because his word from his very being. God is in control. God loves me. And God never, ever, ever, ever makes a mistake. God is in control. God loves me. And God never makes a mistake. That doesn't take away the pain. Doesn't make a bad situation something that we can understand. But it will help us to hang on. That's what Joseph said. Joseph looks back over 30 years of trial and heartache and he acknowledges God's hand in every detail of his life. 
You see, God literally used the valleys of Joseph's life to bring the children of Israel to Egypt to save the lives of the lineage of Jesus and to save literally the entire world at that time as famine went out across the world. God did mean it for good. Yesterday, in the morning early, Laura and I were awake, and this weekend we get to keep our little grandbaby Zoe as her parents are celebrating their fifth anniversary as a married couple. They're in Seattle. and So Zoe woke up, and Laura said, eight years ago, I woke, woke up knowing I had cancer because we had just found out the day before. She said, the day I woke up with snuggles with my grandbaby Zoe, cancer-free, I said, God is good to us. Laura, who understands because she's been through cancer, the sovereignty of God so much better than I, she said, he would have been good either way. He's just good. Let me read you from Ashley McMillan's blog. Her husband, Jesse, has brain cancer. He's the pastor of Cross Lake Church here in, in Cyprus. We had a lengthy day of MRIs and chemotherapy this past Tuesday. The tumor does not appear to be growing rapidly everywhere, but there is a place buried deep within Jesse's brain that we cannot reach with any currently existing form of surgery, and that needs to be managed. We were presented with two options on Tuesday and I left feeling as though we had just been asked which ocean of quicksand we had liked to attempt to run across. I've been struggling since to put all of this into words to scratch my pen across the paper and come out with anything that doesn't sound like complete gibberish or lead to confusion or despair for anyone on this journey with us. This suffering, it's an uncomfortable grace it's not the feel good, someone is sacrificing everything for me so I can be happy and free grace that we like to feel. But it is real, true grace. The kind of grace that knows that grace does not, cannot exist without the truth that brokenness in this life is here by our own hands and we are helpless to defeat it on our own. This is the scary grace of refinement and of release the uncomfortable grace showing us our need for God. It is the grace we so desperately need and it looks an awful lot like pain and suffering. It's the kind of grace that opens your eyes to the reality that you are limited, being made by unlimited God. It is real grace that acknowledges your brokenness and your innate need for care, your lacking of ability, your wronging of the grace giver. It is grace that knows God is taking you where you do not long to go, where you cannot venture on your own, to draw out of you what you cannot draw out of yourself. It is the kind that brings about the understanding that the beginning of true grace arrives when you come to the end of you. It is found when your human options are suffering or suffering. It's the kind of grace that when, you, when it finds you standing at the edge of two oceans of quicksand, wondering which one you will attempt to run across, limping while holding the hand of your sick husband and hefting your four children on your back. When step out into the great unknown you must, this grace 
It's what reminds you that every treacherous step you take is safe because your unknown is unknown only to you. The task before us is not about the seemingly impossible task ahead of us or you. It is not even about the grace given to endure and the guidance to make the best decisions we can. It is all about the giver of uncomfortable grace. The uncomfortable grace of suffering that leads to the joyful and freeing surrender of weary self. I want you to close your eyes with me. I've asked the band to come back out and lead us in a song which is gonna be our song of faith as we just sing it together, resurrecting. Even in the death of Jesus, we see the sovereignty of God when all looked bleak and black on that Friday. And this is what he's gonna do. I want you to believe it in your circumstance. That is the sovereignty of God. You might be in the darkest time right now. God is good. He's your father. He loves you. Little girl, he really loves you. Little boy, he really loves you. And he's gonna work in the most inexplicable things, in the deepest, most unexplainable tragedies. And his will will not be thwarted. And it will be good. For he is good. He is all powerful. He is all loving. He is all knowing. He is all good. And this circumstance in your life, you can't understand. So you have to lean into the sovereignty of God. Lean into him and all that he is in this moment. Will you stand and as we sing this together, will you lean into his sovereignty? Will you trust?